Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hawley of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a GDP Minute. Guys, young grinders. I've been having a tough stretch of days here, truthfully, on the grind. Just, I just feel like I've been getting my head beat in. I won't go into specifics too much, but just know, guys, like, you hit stretches like this when you're trying to grow something where you're just like, what the fuck am I doing? I don't talk about it all the time, but truthfully, um, I think the most glaring issue right now for me is like, I need the podcast to make more money because I have to pay big bills now out here. So I can't, I can't just devote all my time to something that's not making money. That's just like... That's the practical nature of it. In a perfect world, I could grow this fucking thing huge, huge. And um, it'd be a money-making machine because I fucking love doing it. Like, I love connecting with new people, getting new guests on, entertaining them. But I got to figure out how to really grow this thing. Now, we're talking to a couple distributors right now. And um, we're trying to figure that out, truthfully. But again, you guys, it means the world to me if you could share it with a friend, honestly. Um just trying, you know, I'm trying to grind, trying to grow the audience. Anyway, that's just what's going on. Who knows? It'll probably won't even be an issue in a couple months. Um, I had a guy on the podcast two days ago named John Polano. And it might be Polano. I actually felt really unprofessional, not understanding his, how to pronounce his last name. Polano, Polano. Um, really nice dude. Really introspective guy. He's a writer and director. He just came out with a movie called Small Engine Repair, and then he also wrote Stronger, the movie. And, bro, he's had to be, like, one of the nicest dudes ever, honestly. Um, yeah, I felt like I was talking like a big brother. He was talking about love and commitment and, like, how to make it in L.A. And I don't know. I really enjoyed it. Again, he did Small Engine Repair. He, uh, he wrote Stronger. He was out. He was homeless for a little bit. Really interesting guy, great Hollywood story, and um, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my time with him. This was actually Luke Jarvis, who, our producer, great dude, also, plugging his movie, Salesman. Um, Luke landed this guest. So anytime someone else goes out and seizes one, shouts out to them, brethren. Anyway, trying to get to the bag, trying to grow, trying to hustle, trying to make this thing real, and um, all love, brethren. Enjoy. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. The double clap signifies the start of an episode. And before we begin, I just wanted to make one point. Luke, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I do feel like my pants have been increasingly getting shorter and shorter. They're turning into capris almost. So, I apologize if that's distracting during this I thought it was hour. a choice. It kind of is a choice. <laughs> I have no other options. <laughs> Anyway, before I introduce our guest to the right, coincidentally, another New England guy. Who's in the room? What is this? Luke Jarvis, producer extraordinaire, filmmaker extraordinaire. You're getting better at that. And who's producing the episode today? Armand, great guy. And Luke, thank you for setting this one up, man. Appreciate it. You hustled and you got it done. You made the calls. You were the Ari Gold. Speaking of which, I think I saw one of the leads from Entourage this weekend, which was pretty cool. Really? You a fan of the show? I'm. I mean, it's, it's off the air. You're aware of that, right? It's like I saw it back in the day. I am. I liked it. 
I mean, I thought it was fun. I didn't think it was any sort of deep storytelling, but it was fun. It had like a wish fulfillment component to it. So you really weren't feeling that show? No, man. I mean, look, I, it wasn't like deep art, but I enjoyed it. I mean, there's a lot of haters. I thought it was fun. You know? When you vet, um, has your palate, like your taste changed over time since making <laughs> your own film? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, I mean, my my background's in theater. I started in theater. And I think theater sort of dictated a lot in terms of what I like and expect out of writing and acting. And I think making a film, to your point, like made me more focused on, one, how hard it is to make a movie. And good for you if you make one. Like, that's awesome. <clears throat> but um, I, it's actually made me more, uh, I find, like empathetic and, and a little bit more able to enjoy things and not just pick them apart to find elements scenes camera moves and shit that i just appreciate mm -hmm. you know what i mean on my right camera left i have john polono i said that right right yeah that's okay cool. thanks for coming man All right, appreciate man. it appreciate it most people from new england is polano but polono is the correct pronunciation okay, so cool. i appreciate you now luke said dude you gotta watch small engine repair it took me two full days to watch the whole thing just because I'm a little bit scatterbrained. Sure. But I was like, this has got to be the first movie I know of that like really captures New Hampshire. Was, was there any other movie before that? <clears throat> saw a movie when I was like in high school called Where the Rivers Flow North with Rip Torn. <clears throat> that was like a period piece in New Hampshire. And then there's like ordinary people, shit like that. But this is, I don't know of anything that really did the uh, working class New Hampshire thing mm -hmm. or New England thing. So, uh, you know, you've seen some theater for sure that did, but yeah, I, I couldn't think of movies. Okay. Which was fun. So there were, there were plays before yours. Um, I mean, nothing exactly like that, but I think like neighborhood guys like that, I mean, there have been stuff like that. Uh, but, but the, you know, I, I never, I don't think I ever saw anything from New Hampshire that was, uh, that takes place in New Hampshire that was quite like that, so. Nothing to sort of build off of. Okay, understood. So it was uncharted waters. It was uncharted waters. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was awesome, man. I Thanks, man. It. I appreciate it. It was great. Yeah, I, I think my favorite part was um, you you were like falling onto the bed, hooking up with the lady, and like you fell on like two toys, and you had to right. like, move the toys out. Right. Like, hey, I was dying. You know that scene? I was dying laughing. That's that my wife like... in that role. Is that? Yeah. So I wrote a play called Lost Girls, uh, which came out after Small Engine Repair. It's not quite a thriller. It's more, uh, it's more of a drama, but it's like the female sort of thematic version of that. And she played the lead in that, who is sort of like a flip side of the Frank character. Um, so she had the accent, she had the world. So then when I was making the movie and opening the world up of the play, I wrote that role for her. And that was sort of like the... That's the reality of it. It's like if you have kids and you start dating again, it's like that's just what it was. So I wanted to have a moment that was funny, but like Frank's story, which is his point of view, is like it's kind of heartbreaking. You know, it's just raw and emotional and and real, and and that's what it is. You know, you're single and you don't have time to clean up, and she's got wine in her room. She's got all this. So it was like you know, sort of a the inverse of the sort of hot and sexy hookup that you have when you're single which I thought was like more real and more tragic sort of the way that story goes where mm -hmm. it's like he can't really handle it. Now, yeah, I was going to say, did you grow up with a single mother or is that something you just specifically put No, I mean, a single, I have several single mothers in my family. Okay. Yeah, a lot of them. Understood. Yeah. I grew up I'm a, with a single mom. Yeah, I'm a big, yeah, it's, a, look, man, I love single moms. Like, it's my sister, let's see, two-thirds of my sisters are single moms. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> two out of three? Two out of three, Okay, yeah. well, um, yeah, man. So 
Truthfully, I don't know a whole lot about New Hampshire. I don't, but I, I am familiar with the Concord quarries. Yes. Have, have you ever jumped off those things? Uh, I have. Um, I, I, have. I believe they're closed in via the state prison now, or am I crazy? I, I don't know, man. I This was like in the 90s when I was like, you know, a teenager. That's the last time I sort of did that. Okay. So tell me about growing up in New Hampshire. Let's see. Uh, it was a simpler time. No, man. I listen. I'm. I. It's funny you say that. I was just talking about that the other day. I'm. I'm. I feel like I'm fortunate. And you guys are, you know, babies, but you're old enough to have grown up without a fucking cell phone glued to your hand. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you did shit when you went outside and you got into trouble and you did. You like sort of seized the world. And you were bored. I mean, I think one of the best gifts New Hampshire gave me in terms of what I do today was boring the shit out of me. Meant often, because you have to use your imagination and you have to dream and you have to create stories and ideas in your head. But I mean, look, I had a, I, I, I thought New Hampshire's, you know, I had a good time growing up there in terms of like the outdoorsy shit you could do. A lot, um, a lot of hiking, skiing. Yeah, we skied a lot, you know, fished, just out outdoors all the time you know you'd wake up in the morning you get on your bike and you're outside all day and then you come back um you know it wasn't the harder time i had was when i got older and i started to want to do something creative with my life and there was just i didn't know anybody who did and it was not especially where i grew up there was not that environment of sort of at least that i had given to me an outlet or or support i didn't know anybody who did it local theater though right I was unaware of it if there was, you know. I mean, I don't even remember a drama department in my high school. Maybe there was. I had been to one play in all of my entire time in New Hampshire. I saw like Dracula with the Peterborough players, which was uh, just kind of embarrassed me when I first saw it because I was uncomfortable with myself. And uh, I was just like, oh my God, they're like fake lines. Is he looking at me or whatever? I was like, I wasn't comfortable. I, I, dude, I spent a large part of my life gaining the courage to admit that I wanted to, that I was an artist that I wanted to do that. And I think I was like uncomfortable seeing people do what they were passionate about. And I was like, not, I didn't know how to do that. It was in me, I just didn't know how to do it. So all this, I wrote stories, I did all this shit, I did it in secret, I didn't want anybody to know. So what was like your big, your big first step? Like, did you, you joined a theater group or? Well, it happened late, so, I mean, when I was really young, when I was in third grade, I won this like young authors, young authors like award. So you've always had the sauce. No, you've man. You've always been the chosen one. No, I wasn't. It's funny though you say that because like I fucking, dude, I just took a book I liked in the library and I almost plagiarized the whole thing. <laughs> I just didn't get it. Genius. I like, it was about a, a raccoon and I remember I just rewrote it. Like instead of one raccoon, minus two raccoons and I did all the shit, but I drew pictures and just, I just did not get the concept. And then I'm accepting an award in like Concord. And then, uh, you know, but I, I don't know how instrumental that was, but I was like, oh, this is cool. You get attention for something, but it kind of worked with the way my brain was wired. Like, you know, I just know I'd be so bored in class and I'd look out the window and I'd think a scenario is like, what if an earthquake happened or what if a dragon came or, you know, Russians invaded or whatever shit like that. You know what I mean? Just kind of creating all these scenarios, the imagination. And then, and then I like, you know, I pursued when I was in high school, I, I had a, a couple of really good creative writing teachers who really pushed me and they read it. I remember once I had a, so funny, man, you have these little moments. I had this teacher, Miss Giddings, who was super sweet. Even though she gave, I, once I had, a, I did a report on sharks and she's like, it was beautifully written, but I'm giving you a B because sharks are mammals. 
And I was like, they're not mad. I had to bring the encyclopedia and be like, no, sharks are fucking fish. Like, read it right there. But other than that, she was very, very sweet. And I remember I wrote an essay and she read it in front of class. And I, dude, I literally felt like I was lifting off of my chair. I was like floating. I was having an out-of-body experience. And I was like, this is what I, I just like, this is incredible. It's who I am. You know what I mean? It just took me a long time to get there. I went to, uh, when I went to UNH, it was like the in-state tuition, you know. It was like on school on sale. That's all we could afford. All I could afford. You were in Williamson. I was in Williamson Hall. How was and, that? Uh, it was cool, man. You know, it was a good time. Um, I wasted a lot of fucking time and I took, you know, you took classes. I had some really great teachers there, a couple of them there, but it was like, they just would be like, you got to do this. You got to do this. I needed so much convincing to do what I knew I wanted to do. You know what I mean? Like rationalizations because I was too much of a pussy to do it. I was terrified. Of, of failing, of, of being vulnerable, of all I that stuff. I think that's natural for anyone who wants to do something. They have no model, though. No, that's exactly it. No model. No model for success. You didn't think it was real. No, it wasn't real. It felt indulgent. It felt ridiculous. I, I've always, I was plagued, and I think it's somewhat of a New England thing where it's like, why do you think you're better than us? Like, why do you think you can do this? But you did that I mean? give you an edge when you came out here? It did. Well, once I, it's funny, all the shit that you're trying to, I was like, I remember seeing Boys in the Hood when I was like in high school and being like, oh my God, like dwarfed by it. Cause I was like, I didn't, I have, I have no life's comparison to that. What am I doing? Like, I'm not John Singleton. Like, I don't have that shit. And then I it, was driving dirt bikes up in New Hampshire. Well, but that's the thing is, is it takes some time or it took me some time to realize that no one can tell a story the way you can. Your life is, is just as epic and important as anyone else's, your point of view and all that. But I was always like, it's just worthless. There's nothing there. And then I went to an exchange to NYU to, to take a sight and sound class. It was like... How old are you at this point? I was like, just turned 21. Okay. And in New York, and I'd been in New York. Well, I was born in New York, actually, when I was really little. That's where my parents met. My dad was raised there. It was like in our blood, but I'd never been there alone. And it was like, for the first time, I was sort of thrust around people who loved film. I mean, I loved film, but like the guys I grew up with would talk about movies for maybe 10 minutes and then they checked out. Like you got, you know what I mean? You find a kindred spirit and you can, can't do it by yourself. So I, first time I ever had a community and it was like super diverse, man. Like people from all over the world, every shape, size, color, sexual orientation. It was like, I'd never been exposed to anything like that. And I was like, this is incredible. All unified under like a love of the film. doesn't mean they were good filmmakers. One the biggest one of the biggest early revelations I had was like I didn't realize how little money my family had until I was around like real rich people, and I was like, oh shit, that's what's rich. Like I thought rich was like fucking dude whose parents were dentists and he had like an eye rock. You know what I mean? I'm like, Jesus, mm -hmm. that's wealth right there. But then you meet people and they have such a degree of money, and you know, quite frankly, that was intimidating too because I was like filmmaking and writing and all that shit it's not like a it's not an easy working class endeavor you know most people who pursue that have a huge cushion and that was intimidating too because i was like well how do i do this and then pay yeah, the that bills that must have made you feel like a savage when you came out here because you're like yo i'm like super disadvantaged i'm still playing the same game you are i don't think i was smart enough to figure that out okay. that you are i was more like you know, man, I, I always, I made the mistake a lot trying to find, to attach myself to people who saw me the way I wanted to see myself, not having that confidence. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started, I went to an acting conservatory and we started to study theater. And theater was the big, 
I mean, that the, the conservatory out here. Yeah, it was Howard Fine Acting Studio is what it was. And I studied under this woman, Laura Gardner, for years. And it was the first... Now, NYU had a cool community, but it was everybody like, yeah, I'm going to make my, my version of Goodfellas and I'm going to make Reservoir Dogs. It was all like derivative movies, which is cool. Um, I love movies too, but the re and I wrote a lot of shitty, shitty screenplays. And the reason they were is because they were derivative of films. They were... My the, the the experience I was tapping was other movies. And then when I got to that conservatory, you start studying theater. And you're like, theater pulls from your soul. And it doesn't have to be, you know, melodramatic. It doesn't have to be. It just has to be truthful. It has to be real and in, in, in the moment. And it was studying those scenes and doing all that stuff that I first created, a, found a community of other actors, directors. And I started writing like monologues for class, uh, people in class, they would do them for exercises and you have that instant feedback. I'd start writing one act plays they would do in class. We formed a theater company. That's how I actually met my wife. We started producing our shit, putting our, you know, raising money, going out there, moving shit around. And, and I was writing and I had it for an audience. So as opposed to writing derivative screenplays that sat on some executive's desk for <clears throat> you know a year and a half i wrote plays and i said fuck it i'm just going to do it and then the audience starts telling you what your voice is you see instantly what works and what doesn't both as a writer and as a performer and all that and that feedback that that was my big breakthrough how old are you at this point oh, at this shit. howard mid 20s studio? okay so was there any like gap period between finishing UNH and then coming out here yes i uh after NYU, after NYU and UNH, I graduated. I lived in, uh, <laughs> so I was dating this girl, and she went to college in Colorado. Okay. And we lived in like a trailer park uh, together. <laughs> and I was like, what I'm was just, that like? Uh, I mean, it was you know, it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous trailer park. Um, we were just <laughs> poor as shit. I mean, it was a level of poverty that's like not really glamorous at the time. I mean, now, like with the safety of it, I can talk about it and be like, oh, that's cool, man. You go to bed hungry sometimes. Like we moved into this. Uh, uh, off-season cabin at one point we had two big dogs and uh, it was filled with all these canned goods of people who would just rent it and leave it and we're like laughing at the shit and, you know cut to two months later we have no money we're eating like you know Holy pumpkin shit. pie mix um, and you know I call my parents and I'd be like hey listen I'm fucking starving and they're like you can't starve I'm sending you money and then they write a check they put it in the mail and it's you open it up it's like 150 bucks you know because again I thought I was rich but we're not that's gone in two days so. and it just you know whatever and by the way there's no you know it takes forever to get out there so and then we ended up waiting tables and do all that shit but i wrote a bunch of uh terrible i wrote a novella i wrote some screenplays i was like i'm gonna be jack london i'm gonna sit out here and i did what part of colorado is this it was durango okay. it's gorgeous get up and i'd go you know hiking and doing all that shit i had a harley i was like going to you know telluride film festival and watching people do what i wanted to do i was just like i had no idea because i wasn't like I didn't have a community. I didn't know how to get that. So I burned off that time. And then the what, guys- What I, was your confidence like at that time being like truly broke? It was uh, nothing. I had no confidence. But I you mean- had you had a girlfriend. You must have been doing something right. Yeah. I mean, look, I had close friends, but all of us were, you know, it's just a different time. I mean, you're, you're low, low status. You know, you get fucked over by the IRS. You get, you know, people- just don't trust you. You have no money. You're wearing old clothes. You don't want to hire. You know what I mean? You're just stuck in that loop. It's not. Uh, and, you know, look, that's just, I think, kind of how it was back then is your parents would just be like, well, you're not starving. I mean, when I told them some of that shit later, they're like, we had no idea. But you, I just didn't grow up. I mean, you guys know that. It wasn't like the way we are with my daughter, which is probably healthier. 
she's not gonna we have a cushion for her at all times it's always checking in are you okay it was more like i just left at 18 i just left and did shit and you know i was like too i felt bad calling and asking for money but sometimes you had to so did you feel like at the time were you like okay i am rock bottom or were you just oblivious at the time i i just thought that's the way it is <clears throat> everybody i knew that's how it was i mean it was like just like ignorant yeah i was also I don't know. I mean, there was a little flicker in me for sure, pulling me towards what I felt like I wanted to do with my life and, you know, trying to stoke that flame. Um, but it's hard when you're like, you really want to do something. Now, look, once you know how to do it, like you got like, look, man, you're an actor too, right? He's a handsome guy. By discipline. Okay. So say, you know how to like, if I gave you the script, you would know how to do it. And you're like, I just need the break. Let me say, I know a ton of incredibly talented actors that you give them a role, they're going to hit it out of the park. The hard part is getting the role, right? So that's a certain frustration. For me, it was like, not only did I not know how to get the job, but if I got the job, I didn't know how the fuck to do with it. I just didn't even have an idea except for that like need to do it. So whatever skill set I had, that voice, that it just wasn't unlocked yet. I just know what it was. And that just takes time. It takes doing shit. So do you believe in destiny? <laughs> Like really think about it. Like yo, know, you were living in a trailer park. You just made like, I mean, it was a, a nice real deal parkers. Hollywood movie, with real actors and real. Well, I I think, I mean, so to some extent, but I just know for me, like it was, it's just hard work, and more importantly, it's it's meeting people. It's it's, yeah, I do think to some extent. I mean, you oh you, it's like. It's kind of like fishing. This is the old man philosophy I'll give you. So it's like, what bait are you using is what are you going to attract? So that took me a while to figure out what that was. That, can I just, <laughs> no, I don't mean to interrupt you, but. No, go ahead. Like, interrupt. When people say that, like, you are what you attract, it's just, like, so much easier said than done. <clears throat> well, no, what it what is. If you're, like, stressed as fuck, but, like, you still want to go places. You don't want to attract more stress. Well, I'm going to tell you what it is. So already I can tell just barely knowing you guys. Like, you got your shit together. You got the studio. You put your money where your mouth is. You're making something. You're doing that. Again, it, good actor. Well, no, it's true. Build it and they will come. Like, you do that. If you are a negative, toxic, shitty person, you know, it's like we said, starting fights, doing all the stuff, getting fucked up all the time and doing that, who's going to surround you? You know what I mean? But once I started to be like, I dedicate myself to arts and telling the truth, and especially in theater, theater is not super glamorous, but it's incredibly rewarding, and it's a beautiful art form, you know what I mean? And it's a lot of work. Like, you do theater, the type of theater we did at the beginning, you write the play, you rehearse it, you do the lines, you rehearse in someone's basement off hours, you're carrying the boxes in, you're setting up the lights, you're selling the drinks, you're, do you're like working your fucking ass off to do it. Why? Because you're passionate and you love it. That's what I mean is, is you do that stuff and you start attracting like-minded people like that. Now, do you think you're like a purist in terms of being an artist? Like if there was no money ever attached to any of this stuff, you would still do it? <laughs> I mean, I would still, look, I did do it for many years with no money. I would still do something. Now, to me, it's like- but how look, much nicer is life with a little well, money? Well, no, I, I, listen, I think it's just, what do you want to be a hobbyist? And, and that's fine. Or do you want to find a way to parlay it into a living and make money? Um, I look, I'm confident there's shit I could do and I do, I do good, but I'm, I'm confident if I had put this much work into stuff that was just money-making endeavors, I would have made a lot more money, but I wouldn't have made money doing something I love. That's the trick. Mm -hmm. That's the trick right there. Um, you know, for a while I was working two or three jobs. While I was writing scripts or plays out or here when you moved. Out. Yeah. What were you doing? Tell I me. was, uh, my first job in LA was, I, I was in the mailroom at Castle Rock Entertainment 
Uh, okay. Fucking really weird story, but like some dude was claiming that Rob <laughs> Yo, Reiner- Your voice gets so soft. No, somebody was claiming Rob Reiner was stole a movie idea. And it wasn't even like a good movie. Rob Reiner's made some great movies. This movie that he thought he, they said Rob Reiner stole was not a good movie. So the guy, it was like death threats and all that shit. And the uh, receptionists were like freaked out. So I was registered at this temp agency and they're like, would you go to uh, Castle Rock and do that? They, they had to f- disclose everything that went on. And I was like, like, I'm literally not afraid of some guy who's like, you know, says this, it's fine. And there's security guards there and everything. So I was like, sure. So they planted me in the thing. I was like Rob Reiner's patsy for a little bit. So I was doing that. Oh That's how I got my in. And then, and then someone in the mailroom quit and they got, I got a job in the mailroom. And then I got a job as an assistant to the head of uh, VP of, public relations but i was like i'm in the industry i'm working in it. it was cool it was a cool time and this is you're doing the the corporate industry side of things while also doing the plays well yes while i was there i started to do the plays Got it. and then started to juggle those two for many years uh and i was single and i was having a good time and like going out in santa monica drinking i was man i'll be honest though being single i was much less productive you know really yeah you know, yo we got to talk once the mics get off man me and Luke were just having this conversation. Anyway, continue. Yeah, no, because it's like getting laid is a full time job. It's it's awesome. I had great, great, op, you know, great experiences. I really enjoyed it. It was a crucial in my growth. But um, you know, then when I started dating my now wife, and it was like, okay, this is I don't I found the person, and now we want to build something together. It gave me the sort of like kick in the ass I needed, which is like shit or get off the pot. Like, and we we got pregnant real quick, so I had a baby coming. How old are you? I was when she got pregnant. I think I was thirty. Okay, so you're not like super young, but no, no. I mean, I'd had my fun and done that stuff, but I was still in the mailroom. I mean, I was still an assistant, you know. And <clears throat> she was a lot younger, but we were still like, "Holy shit, what are we gonna do?" And it's L.A. It's not easy. It's not cheap. So then I just had to be like, "I gotta." So then, uh, but then I started to temp. I actually I worked at an agency, a PR agency that paid more. I worked for video game PR. Um, which was kind of cool. Sorry to cut you off. Sure. But during this time, because Luke, I don't mean to blast you. Luke's in a similar position where he's made a film. Yeah. And he's also working on the corporate side of things right now as his day to day. And he wants to make another movie. So is there still a seed in your brain? Like I, at some point I will make an impactful project during this time where you're hustling your nine to five. I, I was, I mean, I was making theater. Um, which was, you know, I had some opportunities where I wrote plays and I was in the play. So I'm on stage surrounded by collaborators in a community living my craft. And I'll be honest, very few things have come close to that in terms of the creative joy and the like, you know, when you're doing something and like your whole brain is firing flow state, the flow state. Yeah, sure. I'll buy that flow state. It was that. And that was beautiful, but it was like, you got to pay the bills, you got to do it. So it was a juggle. It was a hustle. I've always been a hustler figuring that out. Oh my God. But I, what, what I didn't, I was focused on the art and my craft and then the, and then the business side came and then the money came. But I, when I first started and I was trying to write, like I said, derivative screenplays and shit and no one cared. They're like, you're 25 years old. Why the fuck are you writing a, a Indiana Jones clone? Like, this is stupid. Like right about being 25 year old uh, in LA doing stupid shit. Like, where's that? And I was like, well, that's not, you know, Scorsese wouldn't make that movie. Um, but it took me, and then when you figure your voice and who you are and what your point of view is, what you need to discover as an actor and as a writer or director or anything, it's like, what's your take on this? How are you doing this different than someone else? And the answer really is, is like, nobody's going to do the shit you do. I don't care who it is. 
You know what I mean? You, well, I think I really felt that with your film too. It just felt like it was your brain. Well, the film was very much an extension of the play, of the play and the experience of the play, which was a late night, really gritty, hugely successful. But we just made it. You know, it was. Uh, I just met Bernthal, uh, and the director I worked with before, and the guy who played Packy in the original production was a friend. Like it was just friends. My wife produced it. Like we did it. Very very low stakes, high yield effort. And we just didn't know what was going to happen. And then when the movie came, you know, doing the movie, it was like, let's do the same shit. Like, I, you know, I was making a lot of headway and a lot of money as a, as a studio screenwriter. And Bernthal, obviously, his career was taken off. But we were always like, let's fucking make our movie. But let's make it with the same sort of aesthetic principles that we did with the play, which is like, we don't give a shit what's going to happen to it. We're going to make it intimate and small enough and uncompromising and then just see what happens. Make the conversations really strong. Yeah, just make it real. Make it ours. Like the lower, the less money you put into something, the less people you have breathing down your neck. And I, and again, I created. That was another point. Like making that movie was another time. That was a creative highlight. My whole brain was just firing on all cylinders, and that's all I want to do is get back to that. Speaking of making things real, when your character is outside grilling, you got steaks on the grill, right? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I don't know if this this was probably your directorial choice, but you had the close up of like you actually slicing the meat. I like uh -huh. I got queasy seeing that. It's kind of gross. I was like, oh god. Yeah, because his hands are all dirty. It's just like ah, oh, bloody nasty meat. Yeah, that was kind of the good idea. shot though. It was great. Yeah. Um, you're outside on the grill. You have the steaks on the grill. What is actually in the tin foil? Is it corn? It's uh, mushrooms. That was my third guess, man. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? What What did you think it was? Oh, you never do that. You don't. Would you put like olive oil in them? You like, just yeah. You just take mushrooms. You put a little, you chop them up. Put olive oil on a little garlic, and you put them in there, and then you just pour them on the, uh, on the steaks. So that was like a delicacy growing up for you. I mean, it was like yes. That's I mean that's still how I make it. So, I, <laughs> you know, we that was a highlight. It's funny, man. You just gave me deja vu because the first play I ever did, the first full length play I ever did, and it went to New York. Uh, for the Fringe Festival. And I had some guys I grew up with come down and see it. And there's a scene in there where I play this cop from Medford, Massachusetts. And he's like in love with the neighbor and blah, blah, blah. So making a sandwich. And he's like, you know, the character is like, I got this great way to make a sandwich with special sauce. Put all the ingredients out and make the sandwich during the scene. You know, it's like a fucking scene. Give you some shit to do. And the thing that everybody who I grew up with would always ask, like, is that a real sandwich? Like, do you, what do you do with the sandwich when you're done? So every night you make a sandwich, does someone eat it? Like, they're fascinated with that, the verisimilitude of theater of doing that. You know what I mean? It's not anything deeper than that. What were the contents of the sandwich? Uh, it was ham, chopped onions, olive oil, lettuce, tomato, you know, all that shit. Whatever the sort of stage manager set up that so night. So you had to consume it. that for every single play? I, I didn't eat it on stage. Their okay. thing was like, you make this great sandwich then does someone eat it backstage? Like the, the, oh, the, never the mechanics of the sandwich were very fascinating to multiple people. Okay. And by the way, that was the first time anyone I grew up with had ever seen anything I did because New York was close enough. Some of them came down and checked it out. And they're like, what happened to you, John? You soft. No, man. they loved, I mean, look, it, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, I did have that phase initially, man. When I was like telling some people I grew up with, I was an acting class. They were like, I, I don't know if, I don't want to say what they said because I'll get canceled, but it was not flattering. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? I have an idea. You have an idea of what they said. But I called you a Q word. Yeah, the harder version of that. But Got it. Well, because you're like, so, I mean, man, you guys 
a little older than that, but when you're first in your 20s and you want to pursue a deg- something creative and you're like eating shit, you see your friends who aren't making those choices and they have a, maybe a family, a house, a nice car by the time they're like 27. They're an accountant. They work at KPMG. Yeah, yeah, but still there's that. But then you're like, look, I'm eat- like, I'm not making anything. I'm just fucking working. I'm not here grinding. I'm out here grinding for something. And then you see that. And then so th- during that window is what I'm talking about. When they're like, you're out there doing this bullshit, like working three jobs for what? To do acting class? Like, what are you doing in that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, what? how ridiculous is that? And then what happens is you sustain the marathon. Maybe you start making... I mean, look, I did a ton of, like, when I was starting out, I did a lot of commercial acting. So I do, like, fucking, you know, I did a big Chase commercial, a huge campaign. So, like, everybody... Chase Bank. Chase Bank. And I was, like, I was literally my face with this 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 woman who was, like, my wife in the commercials. It was like the first time you could scan a check and deposit it over your phone. Dude, the fucking ads were everywhere. People in Miami were like <laughs> taking photos. Like my, me and this woman's face are on the whole building. They're like, you made it. You fucking made it. And by the way, in the audition, the callback for the audition, there's a waiver there that says you have to like sign away print rights for like $2,000. Got it. So it's like you make nothing on that. But anyway, I mean, I made okay money, but the print ad, dude, I'm telling you, like dozens of buildings across the world, my face take up the whole building. And, I and everyone it. thought you were that guy. And by the way, you make like 22 grand minus, you know, uh, commissions and shit. You know what I'm saying? But they're like, you made it. You're that, a star. You're on a bus. It was on buses too. That happened to me when I got my LLC. Everyone was like, dude, big Connie's making millions. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like, with LLC. Like, yeah, you know, I paid $550 online. It took me about 12 minutes to acquire that thing. Let him think. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot what we were talking about. But anyway. That you were was, talking about your first play. Then, no, so uh, so yeah, that, so yeah, so we did that play. We were talking about sandwiches because uh, you were talking about the grill, making the movie. The movie was very much that was the aesthetic of it. Was like a we planned out every shot. We did all that stuff, but it was like a, a performance delivery system. Like, how can we place the camera to maximize the performances? You know, get guys like Shay and Sierra and. And and uh, and Bernthal and and those guys and and make it a fussy camera move on everything. You don't. You just like make Love. it feel real. Mm-hmm. Versimilitude. Make it raw. Make it. You know, like my favorite filmmakers always did that. It was like the camera's like a beat behind the action. It's not. Some great filmmakers do that. Like look at the way Hitchcock makes stuff. It's so pristine. Or Darabont or somebody, but then you look at some of these more raw filmmakers, um, which is what we were emulating. So then, therefore, the food you have to be able to eat it, you have to be able to cook it. It all has to happen. That was like a directive, you know what I mean? It's like then you're sitting there and you're eating the steaks. Like it's all real. You don't want to lie. I just didn't want to be false in the in that sort of contained, which you can do when you have a contained movie. It's not. So is it real booze? Uh, no. Uh, I fuck no. Although most of the weed was real, especially Bernthal was like a huge pothead. He's like, I'm gonna, you know, that, that scene where everybody's getting fucked up out there. I mean, he smoked so much weed. He was high as shit. It was the last shot of the day. He's like, I had to be like, I mean, he gets, he smokes a lot of weed, but he was hitting those bong hits. And I'm like, I took one and I was like, dude, I can't do this. Uh, I can't handle that. Yeah. We did when it was funny, man. Once the play, which was like this huge, it became this huge underground hit, sold out this you know 99 seat theater again and again and again and then when bernthal was about to leave i think it was him to go do walking dead we had a uh substance specific performances invite only just for friends late night so we all came over and it was all drink real booze real beer real weed real whiskey 
and we all got fucked up. Must have been a blast. It was a blast. It was a terrible show, but it was kind of like a, I guess, theater meets Gallagher type shit. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. a, it was like a, everybody thinks it's going to, it was a terrible show, but it was fun and everyone was there. But that's yeah. in Venice, right? Is that, that's where you were doing it? It was uh, actually Pico and La Brea okay. was where the theater was originally. It's like Miracle Mile area. Got it. Yeah. Now, when, when that play started stroking it, how old are you? Jesus, 35 maybe? So you, you've been grinding for like 12 years. Yeah. Well, at uh, when, saying, when like Small Interpair came out, the play? You're out here, you're doing your, your temporary yeah. temp jobs. This is like your first boom. It's 10 years because I moved out. No, yeah, 11 years. I moved out like, I came here at like 2000. And so what did that feel like for you? You know, it didn't feel like much of anything different because it Smaller Drum Repair was the first play I'd written that was, and I had a bunch produced by then, stuff I was really proud of, but it was the first time I said, one, it was late night, so you don't have to, you can be as like rough as you want. And I was, it was the first time I wrote so specifically about the neighborhood I grew up in because I was like, why not? And it was that unfiltered thing was a great lesson to learn because it was like, when you, try to and, and look you have to do this as a living hey a producer somebody hires me a studio hires me i have to say okay what do they want how can i give them what they want and still say what i want right and to get paid it's a collaboration it's a project it's a commercial endeavor but when you make theater there's no money and with small engine repair i'm like let me let me just fucking make what i want to make and make you have it no pressure from somebody else there's no pressure there's no delusions of grandeur it just is what it is it's successful if we get to walk away from it and be like holy shit we had that choice it's like punk rock man you know great punk rock is like it doesn't give a shit it kind of like fuck you i don't care if you like it yeah but i just mean like dude you were homeless in a trailer park i mean it wasn't homeless dude the story keeps getting worse and more it was a very nice dude, trailer you had park. you lost all your teeth in that trailer park <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, it, it took a long time. I mean, I was, I don't know. I wasn't at a point when, when sort of, uh, success hit that I got started getting paid for shit. I don't know. I was not quite at a point where I was like, dude, where I, I can only do this a couple more years because artistically I was so satisfied. I just was, you know, and I, I kind of believe I'm like, it'll happen eventually, you know? Um, and theater was giving me that, that feedback and that like, Oh my God, you have a great voice. Don't stop writing theater. And I had great friends and people and I was had a community of it and they, we were all working together. I mean, look, the first couple of plays I wrote, by the way, the first few plays I wrote, the only way you could get reviewed is if you paid the newspaper, you took those place. I don't know if it's still there. It used to be called the Talukan Times, man. And you had to uh, take an ad out in their newspaper. And if you did, they would send a reviewer to your play. It doesn't mean they would write a good review, but... Like it costs money to have a reviewer. You to had come. to pay for. A and when you're relax. so, when you're such a non-entity as a theater company, you can't get anybody to come. You know, you call them. You call LA Times. Like I didn't have LA Times review anything I wrote until I was in a bigger theater. You know what I mean? Like they don't have the, the bandwidth to do that. So you just do it for the love of the shit and to get it out there and to, just create. So what was the review? The Tolucan Times. Yeah, I don't even remember. I do remember running to the newsstand to get it to read my first review, and it wasn't out yet. I don't. Rem I, I wasn't bad, but I don't think it was great, if I recall. It was. It was like a night of one act plays. You know what I mean? Now, when you dropped the movie, were you monitoring the reviews? Do you really care that much? <laughs> um, or whose feedback do you really care about? I made a really strong effort to not read reviews because 
Now, when the movie came out, it was such like a roller coaster because of COVID. We were supposed to premiere it. South by a week before we were supposed to go out. <laughs> South by Southwest was canceled. Then we sat on the movie. We didn't know what to do. You know what I mean? It was a really long thing. And then the weekend we came out of, in the theaters and it was like on 200 and something theaters. It was a big release for a for an indie movie. Delta hit. So it was like fucking everything sucked. When was this? Like July 21? No, no, no. It was uh, October last year. October 21. Yeah. Got it. But... um. I just said, take me off of that shit. And by the way, I was working on, you know, you're always working on other shit and I just want to be distracted by it. Like I, I just knew that it would be like picking a scab. I couldn't stop. And like, what do you want from that? I, I, it got to the point where people, my wife, my manager, friends would send me reviews. Like, do you read reviews? No. Well, you got to read this one. So then when they're that vetted, you're like, okay, I'll read them. And then, and then they're like, you're like, holy fuck. And you start lifting off that chair again. And you're like, oh my God, they get me. Cause that's all you want to do is you just want them to get it. They don't have yeah. to like it, but you want them to get it. To understand it. And then, but then a couple of days go by and nobody sends you them anymore. And you're like, what the fuck? So it's like, there's a double edged sword. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I got some of the highlights. I mean, I, I, we, we did great, uh, you know, for, for the most part, I think, uh, without getting into the minutiae. I try to stay off like social media, that shit. It's just, it's, it's. I can't handle it. You know what I mean? I don't, it doesn't make me a better artist. And I just know, like I said, for me, it's like, I don't need excuses to distract me and make me feel like shit. Cause I'm like, it's my big albatross has always been to have the courage to just really do shit. You know what I mean? And it's hard, dude. You write this shit. Don't you feel like you're there now though? What's that? You're talking from perspective. Like it's still hard for you to like put stuff out. You feel that way still? Yeah, well, I mean, I put you put a lot more. You know, your your percentage of stuff that gets made is small in comparison to what you put out. You no, always I just mean like you're talking about like growing up. It was like it was hard for you to develop courage to be yes. artistic, but you still feel that way. Or I mean, I don't feel the same way. Like I know I know what I'm doing, but you, you for me, I, I you know, you get in the weeds of a script, especially, and then you kind of. Uh, so for me to really get to that place, I kind of have to let go. You mm -hmm. know. And in order to let go, to go to the places that I need to get, um, just lost in a story, you sometimes lose perspective. So you don't, uh, and then you, there's the terror of the first few people who read it, who, you know, in a good scenario, they'll be like, wow, that was really fun or that was really great. And then, you know, you also know, you have that queasy feeling in your stomach where you're like, fuck, I'm, I need to go back to the drawing board. I need to change it. You know what I mean? Like anyone who writes, they want their first draft to be brilliant. People will be like, oh, dude, don't change your word. Mm -hmm. It's never that case, but that's what you always want. You always shoot for. So I wouldn't say it's the lack of courage. I would just say it's the energy that it takes to do shit that you have to, uh, you just have to preserve yourself. I found like, even just, when I'm, you know, when I'm writing, I had to get off of like Twitter and shit like that because I think good writing is real and is messy. Good characters are flawed. Stories illuminate truths and truths are messy. And I found especially Twitter to be like impossible. Like if you posted, I love peanut butter motherfuckers are going to be all over you. How you dare you say that? Like, I'm allergic to peanut butter. I'll die. You're saying I should die. And people say, like, very peanut butter is awesome. But you just can't please everybody. And it's mm -hmm. cliche. And those aren't real people or not. But like, you just want to have conversations. You want to have real shit. So I want my work to be um, not concerned with being vetted by all of these faceless voices. And it's hard not to hear those voices if you are consumed with reading that. What do we usually do? It's like you see a movie and you love it and you go and you want to read the reviews that love it. 
to reinforce what you believe and, and have that communal feeling. But you need that. You do. I don't know if you do. You I mean, know, I mean, you're probably more of a purist than I am. I, I think I'll send you my movie after this. You're making, oh, yeah, I'd love to. Like this dude, definitely a good producer, but writing wise, needs a little work. Um, I think feedback is so valuable, though. But feedback from a peer or feedback from the general public, I guess, is a little. Different. That's what I mean. Yeah. But someone who has an agenda who's not going to like it. That's what I'm just saying. Is like nowadays you are sort of rewarded for being outraged at shit. And like I, theater where I came from and I cut my teeth in, the bread and butter of theater is always to be provocative and to create a conversation. And there's no bad conversations. You know, some of the most grotesque, disturbing plays I've ever seen are actually cathartic and cleansing and can create real change in your own life. But, you know, stuff that's handling you with kid gloves, that's like utopic and pandering and fake, it may not offend, but it doesn't move the needle. It doesn't do what I think real great art should do. And I'm not saying a commercial entertaining art form always needs to do that, but when you see something and it's the equivalent of just guzzling cherry soda for an hour and a half, you're just like, I'm not, I'm, you know, I don't. It's not challenging. To... It's not challenging. And again, not everything, there's levels of challenging, but I just, what I resent is when someone says, when I'm like, look, man, I'm trying to make a point here. And they're like, the point is valid, but you can only say it in this way. Like, I, I, I hate that. It gets in my head and I just have to avoid it. Now, a peer, someone who's made shit, like a person, I like, I'm always happy to talk to him like that. I mean, you know. How do you separate your ego from the feedback? Well, I, like in theater, I've done it most, mostly for me, it's been theater. I, you know, again, I'm the, the movie, the only movie I've ever directed came out during the pandemic. So I had two Q and A's, one Q and A actually. So it's but never. you wrote the other one. But in doing theater, there are people who are, can be offended by shit. There are, you don't have, like, I'm not like people just have to like, you know, suck my dick and say it's great, but. I loved it though, man. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, I mean, look, that's good. It all, it, it validates when you're like, look, I made some shit and I'm glad you got it and you connected with it. And if you didn't, that's fine. I put Manch Vegas in a movie. I'm the big dog. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's how it, but when people get like a f pissed that you didn't didn't do it the way they would have done it or whatever. Like, I don't need that shit. But when you have peers and people who are making shit or regular people or just like responding, I mean, that's why you do it. You want to, you want to hear that feedback. You just don't want to do it anonymously on like online and shit. I, I get no value from that. There's a line in the movie and I'm going to try to reenact it real quick. If I blow this, I apologize because I know it was your script, but it was more like, it was along the lines of like, my Irish Catholic ancestors suffered for years and years of terrible, terrible turbulence. White people shit on us for years. I don't have to go through this shit. Right. You're familiar with the line. Yes. Now, did you grow up with characters like that? Well, I mean... the Is Polono? Polono, yeah. It's Italian. It's, it um, Italian. It was just kind of riffing on that thing of like, the net, there's just not a lot of diversity in that neighborhood. And as an Irish which he is he's very proud of his irishness and i know a lot of irish people growing up in new england and i've always thought that's funny it's like an irish person using it as it's which is totally valid you know hey man you know in the 1920s irish people were the lowest on the low they were oppressed from all that stuff i it's, still pull it out of my yeah, pocket it, no it's great <laughs> I, it's funny like to me it's just funny and real and raw and i'm like you know it, it's provocative but it's who gives a fuck it's like somebody people say that and it was just in that moment of like Packy's badge of honor that he, you know, because he is like, 
that character is, uh, you know, as beautifully played by, by Shay is like woke or beyond woke. He's not in an environment that has that, but he's a thinker and he's empathetic and he feels everything. So I that's a, it's a hilarious excuse. Yeah, no, for everything. <laughs> but you know, he's not a bigot. He's like, he is who he is. But I, I mean, I just thought that was uh, real and funny for somebody to say that. Like, and, and, and there was a cleaner version of it in the play and in the script. We just had that moment. We riffed a little bit more on it. And that's the version. That was the take that made it to the movie. I still hear he people use that. Yeah. I heard it this past weekend. It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, look, man, I think when when you have uh you know good characters you you love them you laugh at them like the, everybody's ridiculous to some extent like nobody is perfect and that's packy all those characters in that movie is like exists to have complicated characters that you root for that you're afraid of you agree with you don't agree with in the whole sort of range of that it's are you are you catholic uh, i was raised roman catholic i don't really what are your thoughts much. now you don't practice I mean, I don't, I don't practice, you know, I think in really troubling times, I, I go back to some of the traditions I had, some of the prayers and shit, but I don't, uh, I'm not a strict traditional Catholic. What did that upbringing, what was that like? You're like going to church on Sundays, yeah. CCD type thing? All that shit. We kind of started tapering off, uh, when a ski area opened near us and we started skiing on Sundays in the winter. So our church going took a big hit. What was that? Suicide skiing. six? It was called Birch Mountain. Is that still there? It's definitely not there anymore. Birch Mountain. Yeah, it was like a little tea. It was like 15 minutes from our house. It was okay. uh, a little like tea bar. How far are we from Whaleback Mountain? Like, I don't even know where that is. It's like along the highway if you're like headed to Vermont. I wasn't, I was, you know, New, uh, Manchester, New yeah, yeah. which is southern New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, and it's like whatever. So 30, you're like Sunapee area. 40, yeah, Sunapee's closer, but still, there's nothing like Birch Mountain was a little teeny thing right there. Most of the mountains you go up on 93. I was right near the uh, Route 93. Okay. So you go 93 north to Cannon, Sunapee, all those. Waterville Valley, we did a lot. When you go home now or like <laughs> back to the East Coast, does it ever give you a boosted perspective about what you have going on in LA? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's funny because like, you know, I left New Hampshire because I was like, this isn't for me. And then all my, most of my theater that I've written has been about New Hampshire. You know, you write about what you know, but it was like having that, that encapsulated, like, that's your youth. And when you're in it, you don't really have a perspective on it. But then once I left, I realized, wow, that was all my formative years there. And I just knew the, the cadence of the, of the, of the way people talk and the stories and all that stuff. So I, I love it and I love going back and it does refill a lot of that stuff you're talking about. It keeps you real. You know, I have so much family back there. Um, but you know, sometimes you feel as you guys will find soon as you're like, you know, like a man of no tribe, like, where are you, you know, and you have your roots there, but you don't live there for a reason. And then you're here, but you're like, you know, you still growing roots there. So this is like manifest destiny for LA. You're, you're drawn to, uh, uh, something that so many of us are you know what i mean and it's like creating a new community but i mean you'll never be the same you know you're not you go home and you're still like it's just different that's okay you know but i mean look i got older to me having the best thing that ever happened to me was you look great for 50. thanks man <clears throat> for sure honestly i hope i look as good as you at 50. at oh. this rate though i don't know i don't know if i'll have any hair man oh is that right yeah i'm tucking way back take a look that's all right man widow's peak right they got doctors out here. We'll be all right. Yeah, it'll be fine. In the next, you know, 10 year, 10, 15 years, there'll probably be some sort of pill for that. Um, but uh, for me, the best thing was having having a daughter because it got me 
suddenly take my life serious on another level. She's like 17 now. But when I was uh, almost 18, I mean, I was just fucking around. I was like afraid to, to really do it, which you guys are not. But when you build roots and you start having family, it's like you're suddenly, that was a big thing for me to be like, oh shit, this is my family. You know what I so mean? So that accelerated your career. Hugely. Really? Yes. Just discipline wise. Well, it, it you cut out like, man, a lot of people who are, you know, kids, for me at least, it was like having a kid, I, I had to give up a lot, but most of the shit you give up is stuff you that wasn't as important. Like we cling on to the routines of that. And then the emotional, the emotion you feel having a child for me was so profound that it set the bar. It's like, oh fuck, I didn't even know there was those colors. Here I am painting and I didn't even know those colors. And that 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 was a huge part of it. You know what I mean? To suddenly have that. So correct me if I'm wrong, you kind of felt like you were fucking around until you were like 30 when you have your yeah. first kid. So right. what is that, like when you get that call, what is running through your brain? Which call? Hey man, we're having a baby. Oh, you assumed it was a phone call. <laughs> oh, is it in person? Yeah. Um, you just put your head to You know, I, I for me. I think something's in there. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, she was like, <laughs> had the test and she's like, hey, we got to talk. We, she was like in my apartment. Um oh. God. You know, I was so in love with her that I was, it was a really great sort of uh, test because when I found out, I was like nervous, like, fuck, we got to provide. Stressed, sure, but I wasn't like terrified um, in that sense. I, you know, look, I've, I was in relationships with some really, really great women before and you know, having those scares or whatever at that point in your life, you're not ready. But emotionally I was ready because I didn't want anybody else but her. And it just accelerated my timeline that I knew in my heart was there, but it didn't, uh, it just straightened some shit out. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, here we go. This is what we're doing now. All hands on deck. And, you know, what I fucking, I had this line in one of the first plays I wrote where, this guy's goes, uh, you know, he's, he's got a, he's kind of like a tougher guy from Boston and he's got this pregnant girlfriend and his younger brother comes up to him and is like, how do you know when you're in love? He's like, I was literally just going to ask you that question. How did you know? Well, he, well, the line in the play was, is you, you know, you don't want to run to Mexico when you find out she's pregnant. Like that's love to him. But I mean, I knew I loved her before then, but that was certainly like, oh shit, you know, this is, this is the real thing. What does that feel like? To be in love? Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, it's great. I know, but it's like, like, it's like having a know? best friend you ever have you know when you meet somebody and you're like buddies with them and you look at them and you're like oh, this is cool man i'm just not hanging out like i genuinely like this person i want good things to happen to them yeah, but how do you differentiate between like and love <clears throat> that's a very profound question um i think it's you you your time with them is much more enjoyable than your time without them so therefore you want to start making choices that will maximize that time and that connection. I think that's a huge part of love. I mean, I, I deeply love my wife. I've been in love with other women and, you know, other relationships. I've always fallen in love pretty easy, but this was just a different thing, you know? It's. It, but by the way, I will I think a huge component of that is timing too. Like you have to be ready as a person to accept that degree of love, you know what I mean? Like you could meet the person that, you could meet someone today and you're like, wow, I really like them, there's chemistry. I just want, you know, I want to, like this would be great let's get drunk let's fuck this is awesome but you're not ready to do that next step or whatever and that's cool but then eventually that's why you always got i think like you i didn't think it then i didn't realize it but you just have to do the work on yourself so that you're ready too you know what i mean 
and and you will be. But look, a lot of people. So you think like at thirty, you were at that point? Just... I think I was getting there. I think getting pregnant a little earlier. I mean, we were really we knew each other for a long time. Like she was a pal of mine before we started dating. So we we definitely. We're you guys were acting like, together, right? Yeah. Right. I knew her in acting class and like, you know, you're in acting class, you meet, you hang out, you have beers every, you know, twice a week after class. We did the, the, um, you know, the, th the theater company together. We had all that stuff. So we were, we were already like, she's somebody that I was like a dear friend just to begin with before we started like dating. So it developed over time <clears throat> or like at first you knew like, I, yeah. well, she was in a relationship. Um, fuck that old guy. No, I didn't care. But I mean, I looked at her more like, but look, I grew up with a lot of sisters. So I was always, I've always had a lot of girlfriends. You know what I mean? It's just, I've had a lot of deep friendships with women that aren't sexual. It's fine. Um, I've always, I've had the ability to sort of like just have that switch. Like, you know, some guys want to fuck all their girlfriends, you know, it wasn't how I was. I just enjoyed a lot of women uh, that I just, to this day, a lot of my closest friends are women. And, she was one of them. And then it just sort of transitioned. I mean, I was nervous to date her because like, I didn't want to mess up the friendship, you know, but, uh, we didn't fortunately. But was there like a loop period where you like, you developed the bond with someone? Does that, is that how it happened? Well, or like, like at yeah. first you're like, you know what? I think I could spend the rest of my life with this woman. No, it doesn't happen like that. I think that's farce. I think it's gradual. Again, I think it's a marathon and suddenly you're like, wow, I really enjoy it. And you know what I mean? To me, it was like, I knew I was really falling for her when I would hear songs on the radio and be like, oh my God, I got to play that to her. Or I'd start to watch a movie and I'd pause it and I'd be like, you know, I'm going to wait until she's here and watch it. That level of like wanting to share it with somebody. And by the way, I used to do that for chicks and then it'd be like, break up with me or be like fuck you and i'd be like my god i don't like them anymore you know what i'm saying like it's a natural thing but then suddenly you meet that right person and it's easy with her uh yeah it's just it's just easy man it shouldn't be the games it shouldn't be all that shit i think i might hire you as my therapist man it's not therapy bro it's like you just need <laughs> a big you, just need, a, you need a big brother man i do you're right i need a paternal figure in my life man my father and his history with women whoa and that's something you got to work at. I do, dude, honest to God, man, I'll tell you, the best thing you can do as an artist and as a human being is to go to therapy. I never, I went to it by accident when I was like in my late twenties. Just walked into the office. You're no, like, I was, dude, a, you got, dude, I, I was dating, I was man. dating this other, I was dating this girl and things were really bad and we were in a pretty serious relationship and what I mean, had, it was toxic as hell. No, it wasn't toxic at all. It just wasn't going anywhere. And uh, we just wasn't. She was a very good person, which wasn't going anywhere. And we started to go to couples therapy. And then we broke up. And I kept going to that therapist. I never would have. And I was like, holy shit. By the way, that therapy made me such a better writer and a better performer and better everything. Like what the, was the big re revelation? I mean, it's not like that. It's not like fucking goodwill hunting. I mean, you got to get over that shit. It's more like the self-examined life. You know what I mean? Like, what do they say? Uh, you, you examine your life. To know why you feel the way you feel is huge for your life, but then also as a creator, whether you're an actor or a writer or a director, you need to know what makes people tick. Our business is what makes people tick. And if you don't even know your own shit, you're kind of, you're. it's gonna be a lot harder. I, I would recommend it. And you know what it is too, man, is like, it doesn't have to be fucked up. It's not like you just suddenly sit there and you're like, oh shit, that's why I don't like tuna fish. Like that ain't what it is. It's just the gradual time of somebody uh, peeling back and talking and feeling comfortable with that. I, I found that, by the way, that's a huge reason why I was able to be in a relationship suddenly. Cause I was like me and me in a relationship before therapy and me in a relationship after therapy was night and day. Really? Yeah. Do you still go to a therapist? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, when you can, and when you have kids, it's harder.
but it's great. Like I don't think I don't look at it as uh, look at it as a weakness in any kind. I think it's super additive if you have time, you know. And look, hey, I can get beers and I can talk to your buddies. I mean, that's true to some extent, but like getting somebody who is calm and licensed and knows what they're talking about, dude, it's you feel fucking great. Just the it's just the bind of like you're talking to someone that you doesn't necessarily even give a fuck. Like you, you're paying them like 150 bucks an hour for them to listen to you. Yeah, but dude, all that is is defensive talk, bro. Yo, I'm not going to therapy, man. I'm okay. Right? We got You need an intervention, bro. If you're friends with him, no, it's. Uh, I mean, you're not wrong. It takes some degree to get comfortable with, but like, it's it's the context of what it is. Like, they got to make a living. Like, do you, does that mean you need to find somebody who cares about you enough that they'll listen to your shit for an hour without interrupting you? By the way, when Isn't you talk, pretty human. Yeah, but like when you talk to a friend about your like if you're if your friendship is based on you're the guy who always vents and the other guy or gal always listens, it's like that's a one-sided friendship. A, a therapist is just like a consistent sessions where they're steering you towards this and they're making observations and yeah, they're paid because they like went to school for this shit. Do you, you think I mean? you could just look inward and deal with your own problems? I mean, I can't. Maybe some people can. Doesn't sound like you can. I'm just joking. <laughs> like, no, honestly. I'm getting emasculated this whole no, episode. I'm just joking. This is crazy. I don't think, it, well, it's like, look, here, here's an analogy. Some people can have a gym in their garage and they get a great workout. But like, if you go to a gym and you have a trainer and they're like, all right, Connor, I get you for the next hour, you're going to get a better workout. I, I Most people would, you know what I'm saying? And Not I think, me, I'm alpha. <laughs> I think therapy to some extent works like that. In my experience. You know what I mean? Understood. Yeah. And, what, and again, what about like not talk therapy? What about just like behavior therapy or? I've never done any of that stuff. Okay. You mean like meditation and shit? When were you born? 72. No, month wise. May. So what is your zodiac sign? Gemini. Do you believe in all that? I, it's not that I don't believe in it. I just literally don't even know what it means. Geminis are normally like super bipolar. Oh, really? Yeah. They like say, look out for Geminis. Really? I, I think, I mean, my, my wife and my kid uh my daughter are kind of into that stuff um i think my gemini to that point manifests itself probably in the writing and stuff and that i have that mind that i get into and then i have like the functional thing so there's probably bipolar in that sense maybe yeah how do you channel your mania <laughs> look man um also i'm having a great time by the way no me too man uh I, mania in the, in the sense of what like I mean, anxiety nervous energy all not, that shit yeah just like I'm sure there's been times in your career where you've been a little man. Well, yeah, I mean, look, to, a huge help for me is working out. I do have a gym. And I have so a, you're looking jacked, man. I have a bet, you know, right? It's, most of it's like uh, I'm a little soft from the pandemic. But, you know, I, I lift weights. It's I, I get a lot of, like, anxiety and I get pent up, like, anger if I don't. It just feels better. Mm -hmm. And then uh, <clears throat> I like to have a, a routine, which is hard with kids sometimes. But I just have to have my routine and... and uh, coffee like and 5 a.m wake up type thing not that early i mean again most of my routine is dictated around kids it, it works really well during the school year because like my wife brings one of the kids i bring the other one you go you know what time you're in the car you know all that stuff you come back i walk the dogs i come i sit i'm at my desk it's my space and i do my thing you know and i know i know how long i have that that works best for me to have a routine it's hard to get that in life but but that's helpful i would recommend that and you know writers trying to because like that's one thing i did learn early on is to be like writing for a living you have to put the time in reps yes yeah you your reps in 100 percent. and sometimes sometimes you're three hours you get three days work done some days you're sitting there for four hours and you get nothing done 
and then you get up and you go for a walk and you come back. You know what I'm saying? That, but, but if you put the time in and, and look at it like a job and chip away, then that's the only way you'll do it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's how I do that. The, the, the anxiety and the in, insanity of, of the work, it's, uh, it's having a schedule and, and reading, um, and watching shit. I, I watch, it's fine, man. Like I, I like a lot of shitty like movies I find very comforting. Like, tell me one, um, you know, like Red Dawn, like the original Red Dawn. I rewatched that or like the Conan, uh, the Barbarian, the original was like, it's a great movie. It's great. I mean, I don't know if it's great it's with the, the pinnacle of physique. <laughs> but you know how fun that is to watch Jack like I is? never not watch that shit when it's on you know what I'm saying but I'm not like studying it like there's a lot of movies that I'll there's some artistic I will break down the structure of each scene and like emulate it I'm not doing that with Conan the Barbarian per se but I enjoy it but some See, people don't want but some people don't want to watch a movie and watch a crossword puzzle you know what I'm saying some people just want yeah. that just like brain numbing no experience. I think most people do and that's fine I'm just saying like when you're when you're in it um what do you look at to inspire? I mean, mm-hmm. to me, it's always usually a lot of times the same, always chasing the same kind of compo- uh, form that a few movies have made, but like to just unwind and watch shit. You know what I mean? It's like to just kick back and watch. You know, what I got into, I watched all of them recently was uh, The Lone Wolf and Cub. Have you ever seen those movies on HBO Max? Fucking crazy. Like you can sit there with a beer and watch it, and you're like, dude, this is crazy. I've never seen Super it. entertaining and out of control. It's like Kill Bill, basically, but authentic feudal Japan Kill Bill. Okay. It's crazy. 70s, like the fucking guitar, the violence is insane. It's it's hilarious. It's it's amazing. You know a really good heartwarming movie? What's that? Hotel Rwanda. Oh, is that right? It's a real... I've never actually seen that. Don Cheadle, right? <laughs> oh, did it? I was being sarcastic. It's the saddest movie of all time. Oh, is it really? It's yeah, not some, a genocide. Sometimes, like, sad movies can be cleansing, too. Like, I, I, I'm I, with you. I, like, I'll watch something that just shatters me. What, what is you that for you? Right move. I, I just recently rewatched Schindler's List, and I was, like, sobbing throughout oh, yeah. the movie. I mean... Marley and Me? I've never seen Marley and Me. The dog? Instant cry. With Owen Wilson? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a sucker for dogs. So I probably would cry at that. I'm a sucker for Owen Wilson. Oh, who is it? <laughs> Guy's the man. He is a man. What was he just in that I saw? Oh, he's in that Loki show. I watched a couple mm-hmm. of those. Okay. Those Marvel ones, you know what I mean? Those are fun to me too. Like They're impeccably produced. Well, it's like if I'm eating my sandwich for lunch and I don't, I'm not right, I'll, like, I'll turn on like one of those Marvel movies or like 40 minutes or whatever. They go down pretty easy. Oh, the series. The series. Yeah, okay. I'm behind on a bunch of it. I haven't seen that one yet. I've just seen all the marketing. I've heard it's they great. They just kill the marketing in L.A. Their stuff is everywhere. Do you know why they do that, though, right? They're rich. No, because all the motherfuckers who work on it live here. So they're not doing it in Kansas. <laughs> you know what I mean? They do it here. You know, if the, if the lady who made, whoever made Miss Marvel lived in, you know, Wichita, then there'd be billboards all over there. I, I think that's why they do it. Because it's like their boss is driving to work and they're like, oh, they're doing their job. There's Miss Marvel. <laughs> you know what I mean? We have the coolest company ever. We're marketing everywhere. <laughs> um, He's going to make us wrap up pretty soon, I believe. Sure, man. Whatever you need. So... Are you working on a Hulk Hogan movie? Yes. Uh, yeah. Nice. I hope that gets me. Are you a WWE fan? Uh, I am. I mean, I went when I was a kid, but I'm a huge Hulk Hogan fan. And, okay. you know, writing the movie, which I wrote with uh, Scott Silver, um, who's like a, was a mentor of mine and then became like a writing partner. He, uh, it, I had a great time. It's fucking, it's an, he's just such a cool character. 
you got to world. work with him on the screenplay with Hulk. Yeah, I mean it's based a lot on his books and his his interviews and stuff like that. And uh, you know, he wasn't like typing. It's a biopic. Uh, yeah, kind of. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully we. I'll come back when they. Hopefully that's when they made. let you talk about it. Yeah, understood. yeah, dude. Honestly though, man, that's like the. F- I'm trying to think. I've worked on a couple things that were pretty closed lipped, but the Hulk Hogan one is like when they send people the script to read, it disappears in like three hours. Like it's crazy, and it's got your name all over it. It's the WWE. They're yeah. super protective I don't know, of the man, IP. It's just sometimes they get these projects that I'm like, no one cares that much, do they? You can't even email it to anybody. But that one's top top secret. For, nice. for that reason, because it's kind of like a superhero movie, I guess. Can you fill me in a little bit on like the soundtrack? It's like a lot of like 80s rock. I mean, it stretches back then, so I'm sure there will be 80s rock in it. Got although it. that's not, you know, my call. That's above my pay grade. Understood. We'll see. Todd Phillips is, is going to direct it, hopefully. So he's really good with music. I'm sure he'll put some cool shit in there. Anything else you're working on? Anything else you want to promote? Um, I mean, nothing to promote. I mean, I'm working on a bunch. I'm writing a Ramones movie um, nice. for Netflix. Uh, um, got some cool shit going on. I'll tell you offline some more shit. I'm so fucking paranoid. I never know what to say. I was doing press for <laughs> uh, for Small Engine Repair. And people I saw were... you, you killed it on Kelly Clarkson. Oh, my God. How crazy is that? You did great, man. It's so You're amazing. handsome as hell, man. I know, right? I got a new haircut and all that shit. I was like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> I was so like, I was like, this is, it felt like a dream. Like, do they really want me? They know it's who I am? I'm like standing there and it was so easy and everybody's like, you're so confident. I was like, I was like, what? This is ridiculous. I mean, they were awesome and they were nice and I had a great publicist who hooked me up and it was uh, definitely a highlight of the thing. And, you know, they showed I, I honestly did think you did a great job. Oh, and thanks, I, you I appreciate that. I, I don't know I how I would that. act in a situation like that in like a nice live talk show like that. I think I'd probably lose my mind. I, I was just like, this is crazy. And then I'm like, there's no way she watched the movie. And then they showed a clip. It's like all censored. Um, I, it's just, I love the fact that I was on that show promoting that movie <laughs> to their fans. Um, <laughs> although Kelly Clarkson, there's probably a Venn diagram where like Kelly Clarkson fans and small engine repair fans have some sort of connection. Because sure. women love that movie. They love the play they love and they the love mushrooms. the movie. But like women, like mom, especially moms and shit, they love that. Because like that movie and the play were written for like, I with my sisters in mind. It was like being surrounded by women. And how do you, I was like, how do I write like a feminist story from the perspective of these like very masculine dudes and like take them to task? And women are smart, man. They get it. They got the movie. People who were, you know, either get it or they don't like anything. But women are just like, I get what you're saying with that. Which is why I love women. I always, almost everything I make, I write for like the smartest woman in the room, and that will never do you wrong. Guys have lower standards. That's all I'm saying. Well, I think the old adage is true. If your girl likes it, your dude is forced to like it. Yeah, but you know, sure. Why do we all love Drizzy Drake? Yeah, because uh, girls love Drake. I don't really listen to Drake, dude. I'm, I'm Yo, I liked you until you said that. That's See, is Drake your fan? I mean, what am I going to do? Who, who's time? Drake? Yes. Yeah, I mean, okay. I think I just missed out on Drake. I'm too old for Drake. Dude, what are you, 31? But doesn't everybody make fun of Drake, or does he like no, legit people? I'm like, not going to take do you Drake, Drake? slander. This is insane. I'm not slandering him. He's a great musician. Dude, all you do He's is just like not listen my to thing. Eddie Money and weird shit like that. Eddie Money's cool. I'll get you guys. I think it's look, man. I think you probably Drake has more like there were impactful moments in your life where Drake was the soundtrack to your life. I just didn't. It's going on right now. There you go. Right. Oh shit, we gotta talk about that. You having some? 
We can turn the microphones on. Anyway, anyway. All right, we got to wrap it up. Um, this is how we start and end the show. Thank you again. This was a blast, man. Thank you, man. Um, we'll talk about therapy after this. Sounds good. So this is how we start and end the episode. I'm going to okay. say it once. Make sure you execute on the first try. You got to say, hi, your name, and this is my golden hour. Directly after no break, hi, your name, and that was my golden hour. Okay. You got it. You can slide to the camera if you'd like. Hi, I'm John Polono, and this is my golden hour. Hi, I'm John Polono. That was my golden hour. Was that? I think you got it. Yeah, that was All right, great. Cool. I appreciate it. Thank you. You set it up. I was terrified. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait. Was that not it? Hey, enter. Just you forgot to enter. <laughs>